Let's turn together to Mark chapter 14. As you go there, let me uh, just take a second to say I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'm Josh, one of the pastors here at Living Hope. And um, if you're uh, if you're watching by a live stream, if you're watching um, at watching, if you're here in the room with us, uh, very glad. I know there's some like Lake Charles folks. Any Lake Charles people here? All right, there we go. Well, they're over there. In case you're wondering, um, super glad to have you guys with us. Um, we are, of course, joining with Christians from all over the world as we um, move through the season of Lent. We are getting closer and closer to Easter, and so we're continuing to fast and pray and uh, confess and just be open-handed with our lives, asking Jesus to do whatever he wants to do with us. Um, And we're fasting on Wednesdays, remember that? And so if you want a printout of the devotion for this Wednesday, they're available on the speakers down here. Um, But we are getting closer also to the Easter egg hunt. Uh, which is like if Lent is kind of like a diff, like a difficult grind, you know, journey toward Easter. The Easter egg hunt is like this like fun thing that we get to do, right? And um, so this week, here's here's what happens this week on Monday, 350 flyers go home with Twin Oaks Elementary, uh, inviting all of them and their families to come to the Easter egg hunt. There's a QR code on the flyer where they will begin to register, uh, and it's set on the flyer. Uh, Breck in partnership with Living Hope Fellowship and Twin Oaks Elementary. And we've also, um, Shoppers Value is also interested in getting in on this. So for those of you who are familiar with plan, this event will pull all the major components of that community impact deal together uh, into one event. And so all that is happening. And so that will go public this week, which means we need you guys to keep signing up. Uh, because the COVID thing has upped the numbers a little bit, we're, we don't have to be quite as restrictive on uh, like who we invite. And so uh, we're like, like, please invite your whoever you want and sign them up through our app uh, on there because we don't think that numbers will be quite, quite the problem that we were when we were in the previous phases uh, of COVID stuff. So that's coming up. And so there's some really great things happening. The next few weeks will be super exciting. So please volunteer, participate. Uh, but this is going to be a huge, huge step into like this community impact plan that God has handed down to us. Um, so all those things are journeying with us toward Easter. And uh, also we've been going through Mark for, uh, like I said earlier and this morning, years. And we're getting close to the end, which means that we're getting close to the crucifixion and uh, Resurrection Sunday and all that kind of stuff. And so today we get to um, something that I have really kind of glanced over a lot in my uh, in my years. Uh, today we look at the trial. Jesus is on trial. He's been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested. And now he is put under trial from the Jewish authorities. And so um, let's pick up Mark 14. Let's pick up verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. All right. Now I'll stop right there. First of all, this will be one of those days where it's like, I re- there'll be like a verse and then I'll say a bunch of stuff and then another verse, like one of those. And uh, right off the bat, it's important that we know who, who these people are. So when it says that the chief priests and elders and scribes came together, what you're talking about is, is called the Sanhedrin. 
And so this was, uh, it was 71 men made a, it was a, uh, essentially this like big council made up of Sadducees and Pharisees who, uh, were, um, people that Jesus pretty much railed on constantly throughout his whole ministry. And so, um, if you, if ever you want to be put on trial, you don't want the jury to be full of people that you have outwardly spoken against your entire life, right? And so, but that's what's going on here. And the reason this is happening is because, you know, Jerusalem and, and really all of Israel was under Roman occupation. So Rome was in charge, but they let the Jewish community just be the Jewish community, like do their own, their own stuff. They had kind of their own structure and all their customs and everything. As long as they kept the peace, Rome just sort of was like, y'all just can kind of do your thing. And so that's what's happening. Uh, we know that Jesus is under two trials. This is the Jewish trial first. Um, and that's who these folks are. Now verse 54 says, And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Okay, now that just puts Peter at the scene of this, and it means that he's an eyewitness to everything that's about to happen. And that's a very important detail that I will come back to. So just kind of tuck that one away for a second. Now look at 55. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even this about their testimony did not agree. Okay, so they're, they're having a hard time putting, like putting a solid case together. I told the earlier service that everyone has their like weird thing that they did during COVID to kind of like cope. Mine was that I watched old school Law and Order episodes nonstop in the background as I was working from home, like from the very beginning, Jerry Orbach, like the whole deal. And so I'm pretty much a lawyer at this point. I know, and I'm a cop too, so don't mess with me. So, um, so I kind of understand a little bit of what's going on here because I'm su- such an expert. But in in Jewish law. There were certain things about testimonies that had to sync up in order for them to be like effective in convicting someone. And this whole situation is falling apart. They have no, they have no case. They're, they're, nothing is lining up. Everything's contradicting each other. They, 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 they're not going to be able to, to prove that he is guilty. Um, their only hope for success is that Jesus says just just something so specific that he condemns himself. That's what that's really what has to happen at this point. So this trial is completely in Jesus's favor. And the Sanhedrin, they are completely threatened by him. Like he he has spoken against them. They're trying to present this as a religious trial of saying, "We think he is a he is full of blasphemy and he's a false prophet." And so he's leading people down a destructive path, and we need to silence him. That's what they're presenting. But really, they were just scared to death of this guy. He was a threat to their power and their control. And so here they are in a trial that they think, we finally we got him right where we want him, and it's just slipping through their fingers. And really, all that can happen is if Jesus you know, trips up. So verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it 
that these men testify against you. But he remained silent and made no answer. So here's Jesus. They're lying about him. They're doing all this stuff. They're basically self-destructing. He just he says nothing. And a part of that, uh, like a lot of theologians believe, that a part of that is coming from this messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53, this really specific detail that says this, verse 7, uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That he's essentially, through his silence, is communicating something. Like maybe he's referencing this thing to almost to kind of like make it worse, you know, maybe, but Jesus is not a jerk, right? He's just being silent. He could have done a lot of things, right? He could, have, he could have pointed out all their inaccuracies, all the lies, all the things. He could have been defensive. He could have just, you know, you can't handle the truth. He could have done the whole, the whole thing that we see in courtrooms and stuff like that. But he's just silent. And then look at the other, look at 61 again. Um, he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Blessed. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. When they ask him if he's the Messiah, he's not going to be silent about that. He takes these two Old Testament scriptures and pushes them together in his answer, essentially answering in the affirmative, yes, I am the Messiah which would have, would have been considered a blasphemous statement. Jesus, he just did exactly like there, the one way for the Sanhedrin to win this trial is for Jesus to say what he just said. So verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. If Jesus had remained silent, the trial would have fallen apart. He would have been released and he would have just gone about life. But he said the one thing. So the Sanhedrin felt like they have won they, he said something blasphemous. We got him. Now uh, it has to go to Roman court, though, because only Rome could sentence someone to death. So now they flip it. The Jewish trial was about was a religious trial, and now they flip it, and it becomes about him being a threat to Rome as a Jewish king. So skip down to Mark fifteen one through fifteen. I already talked about Peter's uh, denial of Christ, that section. So um, here is the Roman trial. Verse 1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So who, who is Pilate? Pontius Pilate was the governor uh, of Judea. He was the Roman governor, I should say. So... Um, he had authority over this whole whole area. He's in Jerusalem, theoretically, because it's Passover. 
And he's just there to like keep the peace because there was a lot of uh, rebellious, let's overthrow Rome, you know, kind of stuff going on during Passover. And so his presence is there along with a lot. There have been an increase in Roman military presence during this time to kind of keep everyone cool. And so he's the one that's presiding over this trial. Verse 2, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Now this answer would have been interpreted as a, as a direct challenge and threat to Rome and to Caesar. Verse 3, The chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. What's Jesus doing? Pushing the trial forward, right? Just like he did in the Jewish trial, he's being silent, saying only what he needs to in order for them to rule him guilty and put him to death. He, He's... Not, I mean, manipulating is not the right word, but he's, he's driving this in the direction that he needs to go. It's all in his hands at this point. And think about that for a second. Like, it's really all up to him. And he does the one thing he needs to do to move it in that direction. Verse 6. Now, at the feast, he, he being Pilate, used to release from them one prisoner from whom they asked, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What, what evil has he done? But they, shout, they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So the next couple of weeks, as we go toward Easter, there'll be a lot of over, overlap in the texts. And so I don't, this will not be the, obviously the last time that we'll talk about some of these things. But while there is this, there is this big storyline that is playing out, uh, I kind of I, I felt led all week to maybe look at a subplot a little bit. Uh, the, and it's not disconnected from the story necessarily, but... Maybe it just kind of goes in a different direction. Turn to First Peter chapter two. So remember, we saw the verse where Peter snuck into the courtyard to watch the Jewish trial. So he was an eyewitness to that one. Maybe an eyewitness to the Roman trial also. We don't, there's no evidence for that, but it is a possibility. He's a pretty sneaky dude, right? And we definitely witnessed that one. 
And so what does an eyewitness take away from what, what he's experienced? And if we back up a little bit in the timeline, for, some, for one of the disciples to watch Jesus in Gethsemane, come before God and say, if there's any other way, please. And then the father essentially says, no, uh, this is going to happen. And now he's saying exactly what had to happen to keep things going in the direction he was praying it wouldn't, wouldn't happen in Gethsemane. So you think about Jesus in Gethsemane versus Jesus on trial. Peter watching both of these. I started thinking during the week and just praying about which direction to go. And I kept just thinking, man, Peter, what, what, what is his takeaway from watching what we see happen in Mark 14 and 15? What's what stuck? With, what did anything stick with him later on about that experience? Because the trial seems like a kind of just a mechanical part of the plot, right? It just moves you toward the crucifixion. But anyway, in First Peter two, he's writing about how to basically how to live as a kingdom citizen in the midst of culture. And um, verse twenty one, he says this. He writes, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter, in part, his takeaway from what he watched from Gethsemane all the way through the trial is that Jesus was showing us how to suffer. He was showing us how to suffer. So I want to take a few minutes, and if, if you're not already heavy from hearing about your Savior getting beaten and spit upon and whatever, then let's, let's, just, let's just kind of make sure make sure that we're in this right zone. So this is going to be a little heavier than maybe you anticipated in coming to church today. Like Charles friends, I'm sorry if this is like, whoa. But I want to talk about suffering, and, but, but not why we suffer. That's a different, much longer sermon, right, from a different text. This is not why we suffer, or what about this, and what about this, and why this. It's, it, those things are so valid and so important, and that's just not for today. This is more how, like how. Because every one of us is going to go through deep suffering. Like unless Jesus comes back at this, you know, and before something bad can happen, we're, we're going to go through it. We're going to have those times like Jesus in Gethsemane where we're going to find ourselves before the Lord saying, please, please not this. This can't be happening. 
And God's response is going to be, this is happening. I love you. I'm going to walk you through it. But you got to go through it. Some of you have been through those things already. And I was thinking through, I like to make lists sometimes in sermon prep, just to like, just to like remind myself of like, based on the things I know about our congregation, what have we been through? And, and if you're like, oh, he just, he just, he's talking about me right there. The, all these things have been experienced by multiple people. Okay. This is the kind of suffering I, I'm talking about because it's very easy in our day and age to label everything as suffering, you know, or label everything as persecution or that kind of stuff. Like, just so you know, this is the kind of suffering I'm talking about. I'm talking about like Gethsemane type suffering. Some of you have suffered in ways like I'm talking about. Like some of you have had to bury a spouse or bury your parents or bury your siblings. Some of you have had to bury children. Some of you have held the hand of a loved one as, as life slowly, painfully came to an end. Some of you have been awakened in the night by a tragic phone call. Some of you have seen the brutality of substance abuse and addiction up close. Some of you have dealt with the worst news that a doctor can give you. Some of you have to daily live with uh, the, the, the beauty and the difficulty of a child that has unique needs things that are beyond your control and you just never can relax because of all the what-ifs that are out there. Some of you have had to have poison, the poison of chemo and radiation pumped into your body because of cancer. Some of you have had a best friend or a spouse or a parent pull the rug out from under you and put an end to that relationship as you know it. Some of you have walked through the horror of chronic mental illness Some of you have had to fumble your way through the trauma of someone's suicide or you've contemplated it yourselves. Some of you had to live with the ongoing holistic impact of abuse that you suffered, carrying the weight of your abuser's sin every day of your life. Now, Now, you listen to a list like that and some of you are like, you know, raising your hand, theoretically. And then some of you are like, ah, man, I ain't been through anything like that. And to that I say, good, but you will. You know, like, that's a part of the brokenness. Like, it, it, no one avoid, no one gets around this stuff. You're all going to have those moments those Gethsemane moments where you're like, please God, no. And he's like, this is happening. I shared earlier and I've shared in in, in different points about uh, my family going through the loss of my niece. Um, She, um, we knew in the, in the womb that she had a very rare condition that she would not survive for long. And, um, it was one of those times. I didn't even connect this dot until we were in community group. I remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Gethsemane prayer and the Lord just like took these dots that were very disconnected to me and just like pulled them together. Because I remember praying a Gethsemane type prayer of like, please no. 
we the, we can't, we can't this can't be happening and the lord's like this is happening and it's it's terrible right like those of you who have been through that that feeling is so difficult and to know that jesus would follow that up with not my will but your will be done it, if you are blown away by the beauty of christ and the strength uh, of his majesty, then that, that you need to study that more. You know, I feel like we're tracking along together. So if you have suffered, you know how hard that prayer is for to pray. Um, and so whether you have been through it or you will go through it, or you're in the midst of it now, uh, I'm not sure, but what Peter is saying here in this text as an eyewitness, he's saying when, when that happened, Jesus gave us a pattern to follow like the wording that he uses there is the same wording that was used in how they taught kids how to write back then, which is the same way we teach. I don't know if they still do it. It's been a while. But when I learned to write, the teacher would hand you a piece of paper. And it would have like the capital A and a lowercase a, and it was in like broken lines. And you would sit there and you would just like, like trace it 34 times, you know, across the page. And you would just keep tracing it. And that's how you learned how to like write the a capital A and the lowercase a, and then you move to the next letter. That broken line, here's the pattern, trace it. That's the same thing he's talking about here. So look at verse 21. To this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps, leaving you a pattern to trace your life around. He's shown you what to do when you're in the midst of suffering. That verse starts off, to this you have been called. Like this is a, a an honor. This is a part of our calling. Not only to suffer, but to suffer how Jesus suffered. To follow in his steps as we do it. And this is not a very, this, I don't have time to be like thorough in this, but just in these couple of verses, here's a, a few observations about what this pattern looks like. Verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Even with, with all that injustice of the trial, all the lies, all the manipulation, all the motives, everything there, uh, Jesus had a lot of options about how to handle himself. Um, and one of the options that could have been to sin against God or sin against those people. And he did not do that. He, he chose to be holy in those moments. He chose to be holistically holy. Like, like not just holy in his actions and his words, but even in his thoughts. Like there was, he committed no sin, like thoroughly throughout him. Through this process, he's, I'm not going to sin against God or sin against other people as I'm suffering. And for those of you who have been through deep suffering, you know that uh, you're looking for a way, you're looking for some way to cope with it. You're like, I, I got to do something here. And a lot of people turn to a lot of unhealthy coping mechanisms in the midst of their suffering because it's hard to know what to do. We know, and I'll look at the next verse to see what Jesus did, but one of the things that he did not do was sin against God or against other people. And I feel like that's, that's, uh, 
maybe maybe like too broad, you know. I kept thinking, kept thinking like, man, if I was listening to this sermon, I would want a list, you know. Here are the do's and don'ts of of suffering. Well, that doesn't really. It's too. It's too different. Every situation I listed, every person, every, it's just too different. So think about it, perhaps in this way: if if Paul, a part of Paul's definition of sin is to fall short of the glory of God, then for us to to walk in the pattern of Jesus, perhaps it's healthy to think: what does the glory of God look like in this situation? And then you just do that thing, right? As you're going through the depths of it, to be thinking, what does God's glory look like here? Not an easy question to ask. Not probably an immediate, like, it's probably a part of why community is supposed to be a part of our suffering. But that's the pattern that Jesus modeled. I don't know how he, like, it's just incredible to me that that is true. How do you deal with that much injustice and not like punch back in a sinful way? He, well, he's showing us a new way to be human. That's like we talked about last week. There's all these, all these solutions that we're taught about in the world, and Jesus is constantly showing us there's a different way. There's a different way to live. And so such an important part of, of that part of his story is that he committed no sin. If you look at verse 23, this kind of tells us what he did with it. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You know what revile means? I, I had to look it up, so maybe, maybe it's just me. But revile is like when someone's just hurling every insult in the book at you. And so he didn't revile in return. It didn't become like this, like escalating kind of thing of like, you know, some sort of like roast roast battle type thing. When he when they were hurling insults at him, he did not throw them back. Says when he suffered, he did not threaten. Here, here's the here it is. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did he do with every all this internal stuff that was happening through the trial? He channeled that into trust. He could have channeled it into sin, retaliation, whatever. Think of it however you want. But in his holiness. He did not do those things. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just entrust myself to the one who judges justly. And here's the thing. Remember, who gets the final word in our suffering? Is it, do you get the final word? Do you, is it the circumstances? Is it the, the, the world? Is it the enemy? I, no, the father gets the final word. So what Peter is saying is that a part of the pattern is you entrust yourself to the one who has the final authoritative word. In Hebrews 12, we see these ideas come together in in 1 and 2. You don't need to turn to it, just listen to it. Probably heard it before, but think about it in the context of suffering. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Okay, that's the holiness part. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
He despised the shame. That word despised in the ESV doesn't really do. It's not a good word. It's it's more like um, he, like the shame was like nothing to him. Like for the joy set before him, like that's, that's tremendous. The shame of the cross. I mean, the cross, uh, we'll get into it in the next couple of weeks. Just a horrible, horrible experience. But that was like, that's, that's minimized to me in, in light of what is before me, this greater thing that's in front of me. When you entrust yourself to the Father in the midst of your suffering, something internal shifts for you. And it doesn't make your suffering easy. It doesn't make it lighter. It doesn't make it, it doesn't minimize it in any sort of way. It's still hard and just, yeah. But something different is happening when you're entrusting yourself to the Father. And so, and I don't want to make this all about my experience because I don't hate preachers do that. But, but I just, just want to like share my life with you and my experience with you in, in this that, that as, as my niece, um, when her body just couldn't fight it anymore, um, the last eight, nine days of her life, uh, there was nothing that could be done but just wait. And so our family got together, and it's all throughout every day. We just held her. We just passed, passed her around, took turns, and... Um, just waited. We thought it would be a day or two, and it was pushing a week, and it was over a week, because that little girl has a fight in her. And it was devastating to get up every morning and go over there. But you're in this mode, and those of you who have suffered know what I'm talking about. Like, all you can do is entrust what's happening to the Father, right? I had to entrust myself as, as like I'm suffering through this. She's suffering through this. Mom and dad are suffering through this. Everybody's suffering through this. As for me, I had no, I had, there's just nothing else I could do. But just, it was just the most like helpless feeling. But in a, in a way that once I realized I just have to like in, just entrust myself. There's just not a better way to say it. And as that began to happen, nothing got lighter, nothing got easier, nothing got but it but it was different. Something different was happening. And I began to realize like in those times where like you're going through the depths of it, I found myself and just the patterns of my mind going in and out of who, like the character of God and the nearness of God and my identity and her identity and our identity and all those things weaving together. And there are these four questions that I've used uh, over the years in, in my own life and in teaching others and stuff like that. And it's like, who is God? Where is God? Who am I? Where where am I? Who is God? What, what is his character? What do I know about him? Where is God? Do I think he's far? I think that he's near. Who am I? Am I a son or am I not a son? I'm holding a, a dog in his image, true or false, you know, with those kinds of things. 
And then where am I? Am I, am I, connect, am I a, a branch connected to the vine? Is his life flowing into me or not? All those things are, are happening in, the, in, this, in this moment. And it, every single time the answer just made me entrust what's happening to God even more, even though I didn't understand it and I hated it and I still don't feel good about it and I don't think that I ever will and I don't know that I really should. Um, there's just something about entrusting ourselves to the Father. Something was just different. And Peter... Knows that Jesus did that, that that's the pattern. Notice in yes to the Father, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You put those put those ideas together, like Jesus, his suffering had a had a trajectory to it, had an arc to it. Like he took the sickness of our sin upon himself so that we could live and be healed. There's this like exchange that's happening. There's this formula that's happening. It's like he knew what his suffering was going to produce. And for him, the joy set before him, he endured. Like for him, he's saying this is worth it. And that feels so weird to say about some of the things we have to suffer. And so I don't say that lightly or to, to minimize anything. I struggle to apply it to my own situation as well. I'm just saying for Jesus, that was the case. And if he's invited us into this pattern, perhaps for us, it can be a case. And I haven't worked through all these kinds of things, but let me tell you one more, one more part of what we went through. Um, when, it, when it was time to like... Uh, when she came home and it was like, hey, we're just going to wait. Uh, a, a part of what made going over there so important was the fact that, so her her testimony in heaven right now, a part of that testimony is, for the last eight, nine days of my life, I was held nonstop by people who love me. Nonstop. And so... You're like, am I willing to suffer to help her and her suffering? Can, can this all be somehow working together to have, have something beautiful there in the midst of this tragedy? Can, can there be any beauty in the ashes here at all? And the thing about beauty and ashes is it, it, beauty doesn't, like, you know, doesn't like negate the ashes and throw them out. They just kind of coexist right now. But you got to look for the beauty, right? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. We don't know what the joy is. One day you'll get to ask him face to face, and he'll have a brilliant answer that will, you'll love. But for us, it's setting something there in front of us. By his wounds, you've been healed. You know what that means? That means that you can get through anything because his wounds have healed you. you. You can get through anything. Last verse. For you were straying like sheep, but, na- but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
When you're, when you're suffering deeply, you feel a little bit crazy. And a few of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you feel so scattered and you feel, you know, and, and I don't think this verse is talking about that, but in the midst of suffering, uh, to remember, uh, he has gathered you together that as you suffer, you have a shepherd. You may feel like you're wandering aimlessly, but you have a shepherd. You have an overseer. And he's really good at what he does. And so let him do that. So to think about Jesus going from Gethsemane, saying, please, God, no. God says, this is happening. I love you. I'm going to walk you through it. But it's happening. For Jesus to have that your will be done prayer, to then move his own trial in the direction of obedience. If you think about this, if Peter is right and the pattern that Jesus is setting is one of holiness, one of entrusting himself to the Father, and one of setting the setting a long-term, like what's on the other side of my suffering kind of joy before him. Letting God be the shepherd and overseer of his soul. I feel like that's a pattern that I, I desperately want to walk in. I cannot say that in what I... I personally went through with my niece. Um, I can't say that I followed that pattern perfectly. Uh, I think there were some parts that I did and some parts that I did not. Um, and I'm only speaking from my own experience, I'm not speaking for any, anyone else that went through that um, or anything else that anyone else has gone through. But when I think in terms of it, if I'm looking down the, the pathway of my life, that box didn't get checked for me permanently, right? Like I haven't like, okay, I went, I went, through, my, I went through my suffering experience. There's more ahead for me. There's more ahead for you. Until Jesus returns, this is a part of what we are called to, is to suffer in the pattern that he has laid out for us. And so however this might be helpful to you, like I said, maybe you're, Maybe you've been through it and you're kind of trying to process it. Maybe something is ahead for you that you need to come back to on this. Maybe you're in the midst of it. Maybe someone you're close to is walking through it and you're not sure how to do it. However, however that works, let's just let's take, let's take all those practical things and let's like put, them, put them aside for a minute. And let's just be in awe of Jesus for a moment. You think about how hard it is for us to go through all these things in life and to do so in holiness. And to do so entrusting yourself to the Father and with the joy set before you of what's on the other side of your suffering, you think about like what the beauty and the majesty and just how stunning Jesus is. He just kept saying yes. When God says this is happening and Jesus says, your will be done, let's go. The strength that it took, the faith that it took, He's just the best. It's unbelievable. And so all the personal application, let's just, like I said, let's just kind of leave that for its own time. But this morning, maybe we can just sing a little bit, not about our personal suffering, but in awe of him and who he is and what he has done. Uh, Because 
it's just the most amazing story ever because he's just the best. He's just the best. Let me, let me pray for us. Let's stand together. I've talked for a long time, so you can stand. Lord Jesus, I am, of course, humbled. And just to think about, think about the, what you went through and what you took upon yourself and what you said yes to. And if I were to just to, to bring it down to the, the fact that you said yes to woundedness and death in order to bring life and healing to all of your sons and to all of your daughters, that that sickness of sin would be put onto you and you would take it to the grave and leave it there. That's driven by love, love for the Father, love for us as your kids, love for creation. I don't know. I don't know how you were able to put up with uh, the things that you put up with. And as we watch that trial move forward and all the injustice that was there and everything coming upon you, and we know that's just a drop in the bucket. Jesus, we're just in awe of you and your your goodness and your strength, and your trust. And we know that it's not uh, because we earned it. Not all these weird things that float around our heads sometimes. It's just, just because you are love and you are good that you did these things. And so as we sing this morning in just response to who who you are and what you have done, I ask that you help us to do that in spirit and in truth.